Well, good morning, friends. If you would, go ahead and grab a seat. Thank y'all so much for being here this morning. You braved the cold weather, the Florida tundra. So, yes, exactly. That, that game had nothing on this gathering. So, um, but friends, it's, it's great to be with y'all. Uh, thanks for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint or newer to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie. Uh, I get the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here at Crosspoint and also the joy and the privilege to open up God's word with you all this morning. If you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for inviting us into uh, your home, your living room, wherever you're tuning in from. Um, and I know these things I tend to say, like kind of run through these e each week. If you've been here a while, you're like, I'll probably say this and this, but like, I really genuinely do mean it. Um, it is a joy and it's a privilege. Uh, I love getting to be part of what God's doing in and through this church. Love you all. And so thanks for just being part of what God's uh, doing. And if you're somebody that's newer to Crosspoint, just we're praying for you that, that God would lead and guide you. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to be connected to a local church. I don't have a verse that says it's gotta be this church, but we would love to help you connect if this is where God's calling you to in the new year is a great time to do some of those things. But this morning uh, we are week two. It's a series that we are coming back to each January uh, where we're looking at the, this theme of God's heart for justice. It's this uh, series called Seeking Mishpat, which is a Hebrew word for justice. I'll explain that more in a moment. But our text this morning that we're going to get into is Acts chapter 10. All right. And so if you have a Bible, I would like you to if you get that out or use one of the ones that's in the pew. You can also scan the QR code that's in the pew in front of you or go to thisiscp.church. And uh, if you go to this cb.church, you'll see that little blue next steps icon. If you click that, a menu will come up or the QR code will bring you there, which has the, the text this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 10 is a lengthy narrative. It's a beautiful, wonderful story. Uh, I'm gonna read a portion of it together and then we'll finish it up later on. Uh, and we will stand in just a moment, but I realized like you'd be standing for a long time uh, if I was reading all, all of this. Um, but it is a wonderful story that gets at this idea of God bringing a right ordering justice uh, to his church, to his his people. So uh, with that, if you have your Bibles now, you go ahead and stand. I wanna read Acts chapter 10 and gonna be looking at, we'll read through verse 33. So it's still a fair bit uh, to cover. Uh, you'll be standing for a while. If you are like, I don't wanna stand anymore, you can sit down, it's, it's fine. But um, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse one, here is this account of Peter and Cornelius. It says this, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa, and bring one Simon who is called Peter. And he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and, devout, and a devout soldier from, whom, from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So now they're on the way to Joppa and now something's happening with Peter simultaneously. Verse nine, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. 
But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate and they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. So rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And the next day he rose and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and he fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, whoa, stand up, I too am a man. And he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit, of, visit anyone of an, another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> you all hit your stand goal already for the day. So you're, you're good. All right. So uh, this series that we called Seeking Mishpat, this Hebrew word, we looked at it last week as we examined uh, the calling out of Micah chapter six, verses six to eight, verse eight in particular, where it speaks of what is, what does the Lord require of you? Like, what does he desire for his people? And he says that we would do justice, all right? That we would, let's call it to like do justice and to, to love mercy or kindness and to walk humbly, to walk carefully with God, to be about God's purposes. And this Hebrew word mishpat is this idea, certainly that includes like justice in the sense of like, there's a courtroom sort of scene, but it is much more uh, all encompassing than that. When the Hebrew scriptures, when the Old Testament in particular uses this word, and it is used more than 200 times in the Bible, so often it is paired next to descriptions of those who are the, the widows and the orphans, right? The, the poor, the immigrant, the marginalized, those who don't have some of the, the power that, the rest may be people in culture might. And so God is saying, seek mishpat in all areas, but in particular for those that are often overlooked. And the idea then is not so much a courtroom scene, but it's this idea of a right ordering of society. It's God saying, see the places where it's not how I designed it to originally be, and then get it back on the right course. Like through the power of the spirit, not because we can do this in our own strength, but there is an invitation that God is saying to us as his people, listen, you and I get to participate Part of our calling as the church is to seek Mishpat. And so we are looking and examining that theme together. And as I was studying for this, I came across a, an account, uh, Kent Hughes in his commentary, uh, the pastor and theologian Kent Hughes in his commentary on the book of Acts. 
recounted a, a story he was reading some time ago. He was reading uh, a, a biography, actually an autobiography of Gandhi. It was this work that Gandhi had put together telling his, his story and how he as a young man who's from India, he travels to, to study. So he moves from his homeland. He moves from the place where like everything he would have ever known, his family, his friends, the cultures, the customs he was used to, the food he likely would have been used to, like all, all these things. And, and he moves to come be a student in England. And while he's in England as this man who is way far away from his homeland, all right, who is a devout Hindu, he somehow gets introduced to Jesus in the sense that like he's beginning to hear about this Jesus and so much so that he begins to get a copy of the scriptures and he begins to read. He tells us in his autobiography, he begins to read the account of Jesus's life in the gospels. When Christians say the gospels, it's referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so page after page, apparently this young Gandhi, he's working through this and he begins to see something really remarkable, really beautiful. And as he tells the, the story in his autobiography, he's beginning to be moved by the fact that this Jesus had room for the marginalized, that he ministered to the, to the leper, that, it, that he went to the broken, that he sought out the tax collector, that he's got this group of, of people that don't fit in. They wouldn't have fit in anywhere in, in culture. And he's beginning to see, oh my goodness, can, can this person bring about the unification? Because he knew his homeland was marked by a very severe caste system, meaning there were very clear lines of like who was in and who was out sort of this pecking order of things, like where you were on the social ladder, it was very clear. And if you were born into one group, like you couldn't get out of that. You were put into the, this spot and that was gonna be your life forever. But he's seeing this Jesus on the move and he's, he's bringing in the people who don't fit in. They're finding family and he's reading about this Jesus who's saying, I haven't come to call the healthy, but, but the sick and he's ministering. And so one week then, as he's reading through this, he tells the story that he, he gets uh, kind of the courage up to say, well, I gotta go learn about this. And as he's hearing and learning more, he, he realizes like there's a church not too far from him as he's studying there away from, from home. And so he makes plans that upcoming Sunday that he's gonna go to this church with the intention of I'll be in the service and I'm gonna seek out the, the pastor afterwards. And I wanna I want talk to him about this Jesus. I wanna hear like, how does he, how, like, how does Jesus bring about this unity? He was very drawn to that vision. And as he tells in his autobiography and as Kent Hughes related in his commentary, he was met with utter disappointment as he walked through the door, hoping that he would be able to be there for the service and then talk to the pastor afterwards, but he never got that far. In fact, he never actually even got to be part of the service because he was met by a couple of the church ushers who escorted him out and said there was not a place for him, that he wouldn't belong here, that he might be better somewhere else. And in his autobiography, he writes these words. He says this, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And there's this devastating honesty there of a man who had been so drawn to Jesus and then sadly ran into his followers. and was like, wait, this is jarring, right? Maybe you've ex experienced that. And there's places where I think we all have to be honest to say, our are we living and leaning into this mishpat, this right ordering that God has for us? What he read about in the life of Jesus was very different than what he experienced out in the church. And one of the things we have to ask ourselves is like, do you and I, if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, do you love what God loves? 
Or maybe another way to frame the question is like, do you and I, like, are we heartbroken by the things that break the heart of God, the things that grieve the heart of God. I believe God's heart was grieved when Gandhi showed up at a church service and then was rejected and pushed away. Imagine how the trajectory of his life could have been different if he had been welcomed with the grace that Jesus would have 100% offered to him. And so do you and I love the things that God loves? Are we grieved by the things that grieve the heart of God. And one of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is God's call from the very, very beginning is that this movement of God is not to be isolated to one group of people, right? One race, one ethnicity. It's not to be isolated to one group, like a socioeconomic status, this caste system, the different layers. Like it's supposed to abolish all of that. Not that we don't have any distinctives anymore, but rather there's this unifying work of the gospel. And that story is told from the time that God called Abraham and said, I'm gonna make you into a great nation so that all the nations, all the nations, all the various peoples of this earth would be blessed. The picture at the end of this great book, like if you just keep reading, you keep turning the page to the right, eventually you and I would find ourselves in the book of Revelation where we see every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne room of God, worshiping. And it would look very different than what we've grown accustomed to probably in our context. Not that there's anything wrong with this context, but more of like, oh, there's this beautiful diversity of God's kingdom. So this morning, we wanna look at this theme of, of justice or of mishpat. What does a right ordering look like as it pertains to God's heart for a diversity, for a multi-ethnic family that he is calling together? And there's a this story that we read, this narrative out of Acts chapter 10 is one of, the great stories in the New Testament. And if we were to look at the beginning of the book of Acts, you can see it there on the screen. This is Jesus, some of his final words. As he's getting ready to ascend up into the heavens, he says this to a group of followers, a group of people that don't have it all figured out, a group of people that have denied him, i.e. Peter, who we're talking about in Acts chapter 10, right? And he says, you all will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's like, just hang tight. I'm gonna ascend, but just wait here. The Holy Spirit's gonna come and you will be my witnesses. And then he says this, here's God's plan. It will begin in Jerusalem and then it'll spread out to Judea. It'll even cross into the area of Samaria where there was great contention between the Jews and the Samaritans, but it's not gonna stop there. It's to go to the end of the earth. So that's Jesus' commission. If we kept reading the book of Acts, we know that the Holy Spirit does come. People get saved. The gospel is beginning to cross some of the, those lines. The church is becoming more diverse, but it's not yet at the point where God desires it to be. Mishpah is still not happened because at this point, Acts chapter 10, depending on which commentary you read, some will say this might be six years later, could be a decade after Jesus' words were spoken in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Regardless, there's a significant period of time and the gospel has still stayed relatively local. It hasn't gone out. It hasn't crossed some of the thresholds, some of the, the boundaries, both ethnically, but also across different just, you know, it's classes and races and all, all these things, language barriers. And so this is where we pick up the story and it starts, we're not gonna have time to look at like obviously every verse in detail, but I wanna just highlight a few things. It starts with God's loving confrontation. That's what we're gonna see as we look at the verses we just read, the first 33 verses. It's God getting the attention of his people. Like anytime you read the Bible and it's like, oh, there's 
a vision given and it tells us that Cornelius, right? He's praying and then there's this, this figure that appears and it says he was filled with terror. Rightly so, right? Uh, that would be the normal response to that. God is getting his attention, but he's not just getting Cornelius's attention for his own sake. He's getting it because he's got work for Peter to do. He's gonna draw and woo Peter. He's gonna bring him in. We're gonna see that confrontation, but there's a couple details in here that I find so fascinating. When the Bible repeats certain words or phrases in a like short proximity, right? Like in a kind of close uh, proximity in the text to one another, it's worth asking, hmm, wonder that what's happening there? Like, what's that all about? And as I read this, you might've noticed that the location Joppa is referred to. And maybe you're like, oh yeah, they got a great pizza place there in Joppa. I don't know what your thought is, right? But like, the reality is like, listen, Joppa is repeated multiple times. And I don't think that's by accident because there's some beautiful details that I, I think if you would have been one of the original hearers of this, this would have been like one of the lights on the dashboard. And then there's another thing because this is, a, this is a, an account. Yes, it's Cornelius, but it's primarily focused on really what Peter is doing and his response, what's it gonna be to this, this vision and how it ties to this Mishpat mission that God actually has for his people that includes Peter, but also includes you, and me. And one of the things throughout the, the Bible, when we get introduced to people, um, they have different names oftentimes. So Peter, right? It's called Simon Peter, all right? He's also referred to as Simon Barjona, which means Simon, the son of Jonah. That would be another light on the dashboard because there is an Old Testament story of God coming to a prophet and he comes to a prophet named Jonah. And Jonah is in a particular place called Joppa. And God tells Jonah in Joppa, I need you to go to Nineveh to this people that they don't fear God, they don't worship God. In fact, they're enemies of God's people. I need you to go there because I have a mission for them. And what does Jonah do? He's like, I will take a ticket now to, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says, not Nineveh, right? And so he goes, to Tarshish. And then we know, right, the seas and the, the whale, the big fish, all, all those things happen, all right? What's going on here? Now we're introduced. We've got a son of Jonah, Simon Peter, Simon Bar Jonah, son of Jonah is back in Joppa. If you're like, oh, that's just a coincidence. No, this is God's design. He's saying there was once a prophet who didn't listen, but now there's this apostle Peter and he's gonna get a word. He's gonna get a vision. He's gonna get a message. And will he like Jonah run the opposite direction? Or will he engage in the mission that God has called him to? What is this son of Jonah gonna do that finds himself in Joppa? And so as we look back, right, we see like in verse three, it tells us, all right, yeah, Cornelius gets this vision. That is a way of God clearly communicating, I'm up to something, don't miss this, all right? So he responds and he sends these men on their way. And then as we jump to verse nine, we see, okay, now Peter's going up and he's gonna go pray and he's up on the rooftop, right? Sounds like an amazing quiet time. He's like, I'm gonna go up to the rooftop and pray. And he's got people that are gonna go prepare him food because I'm hungry, right? Anyway, like there's this, this scene that's taking place. He's up there. And it says he falls into a trance and he saw the heavens open and a great sheet descending, like it's being let down its four corners upon the earth. And there's all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So in all things, there's a good Jewish man, law abiding. He would have been like, no, I, I can't eat those things. They go against like God's dietary laws. And yet God says to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, what is really interesting, so we don't miss this, 
is that the response of Peter, after the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat in this dream, in this vision, this trance that he finds himself in, what is Peter's response? Peter says this in verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean, all right? And then the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened not once, not twice, but it says three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. If we just stop there for a moment, at one level, it's like God is just determined to make sure Peter's attention is, is gotten, right? Because if you get one vision, that's one thing, all right? Maybe you could dismiss it. You get a second, but a third time, this voice, and we're to understand it, that Peter would be like, no, 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 Lord, I'm not gonna do it. Now, this shows us another, I think, scary aspect that we have to pay attention to. What is Peter doing when he's telling the Lord to the command, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, no, Lord, right? What's he in the middle of doing at the moment? He's in a prayer time, which means that it's possible for you and I, much like Peter, to be doing all of the, like even good things, like gathering for a church service, going to a prayer meeting, spending time in personal devotions or corporately. None of those are bad things. Those are all things that we would encourage. And yet, there can be a confidence in our external behavior because Peter's like, I'm in this prayer meeting and Lord, I'm not gonna do that. And I've never touched or eaten anything unclean. And he's still operating with a mindset that says he's justified by what he avoids or the things that he does that's different from other people. Like it's possible that you and I, even as we start out the year together, we're looking to seek Mishpat, that we can be involved in all the sort of religious trappings and yet miss the voice of God, to miss the heart of God. So don't be deceived that just because like you're here and I'm here this morning, that means like, hey, we've got this all figured out. No, Peter was devoted as can be, given time there to go pray on the rooftop. And yet he's being disobedient to the will of the Lord. And now it says, verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold the men who were there, then the door knocked, right? And I think at one level, if we can just stop, and think for ourselves and realize this, that the truth of the matter is like, we all need to be confronted sometimes. God in his graciousness and his kindness and his heart, not only for Peter, but also to see more people, people like Cornelius, people that were not part of God's original people, see God's heart to bring them in. Friends, Cornelius, just to give some context, would be, at one level, an enemy of God's people because he's a Roman centurion. They would have viewed him as the enemy, 100%. That is not somebody that's deserving of grace. It would have been like, come on, any, please, anybody but him. Like they're part of the problem here. And now you want to give them grace? More than that, he's a Gentile. And for the Jewish people, the Gentiles, like just to get at the level of animosity, like historically, this is recorded, like, Jewish midwives were not allowed to even help a woman in distress who was a Gentile because they didn't want to bring Gentile scum into the earth. That was literally like how, what they would talk about it. And if you happen to talk about a Gentile, say the name Gentile or that, that, that word or that phrase, you would say it and then spit upon the ground. Like there's a level of contempt there, right? Like you may not like something that I do, but like maybe you're at lunch and oh, what'd you think of the sermon? And you're like, Jamie, and then you spit upon the ground. Like there's a level of intensity about that, right? 
It's like, whoa. But that's what they would have done. And so there's this real divide. And one of the things I love about the scriptures is the timeliness of it, but how timeless it is as well. Because I think sometimes we can read this and think, oh, can we can just get back to the, to the early church days. They had lots of issues just like we do. And that's not to excuse our issues, but rather to see, oh, like how does God's grace work in and through? Were they a divided time? Were they living in a polarized time, a fractured time? Yes, they were. Are we? Unless you've not been paying attention, yes, right? And we see the gospel continuing to move forward. So I think we all need to be confronted sometimes. Not to heap upon guilt and shame, but that we would be open. I, I would even encourage you right now in the quietness of your own heart, spirit, like search me, know me. Like where does the light of the gospel need to shine more brightly? There's places of darkness in my heart and my mind. There's things I'm not even aware of. Ways that, that I carry a, a self-righteousness, prejudice when there, there's things where I, I operate out of fear and don't move toward other people. I imagine you have some of those same things. So what would it look like to ask the spirit to search us and lovingly to confront us? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we see this confrontation, all right? We get to verse 23, all right? So Peter invites them in and then it tells us like he goes with them. He accompanies them to Joppa, all right? And then verse 27, he's talking with them and he found many persons gathered, all right? And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection and I asked why you sent for me. And so we're beginning to see this play. We're beginning to see Peter taking some steps in the right direction. All right. And then verse 33, we get this word from Cornelius. So I, I sent for you at once and you've been kind enough to come there. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So where's the story gonna go? What is gonna happen next? And so what I want us to see, let's look at verses 34 to 46. We're gonna see not one conversion, but multiple conversions, two conversions that really take place. And the first I'll read here begins in verse 36. We drop down. We'll come back to verse 34 and 35 in a moment, but it says this, as for the word that he sent to Israel. And so imagine the scene here for a moment, right? Peter has got this captive audience. He's literally been, been told, all right, by Cornelius, like, all right, I've invited everybody over. Like, what do you have to say? Like, I got a vision that said there's a man, all right, staying with Simon the Tanner, but there's a different Simon that, that's there. You'll find him. Get that guy, not the Tanner. Get the Simon Peter to come over and he's gonna share with you. Imagine even just for a moment, I love this detail that the scriptures give us about Cornelius, right? Just the, like the expectancy, the, the enthusiasm, the like God's clearly up to something, but he doesn't know. He doesn't know how this is gonna play out. He risks, talking about the vulnerability. I mean, he's inviting his friends, his neighbors over. Like, is this guy gonna try and sell us something, right? Is this some marketing scheme? No, he's like, invites them in, but he doesn't know. Imagine his neighbors and family and friends. They're like, well, what are we coming over for? And he's like, I don't know, but I saw an angel and I sent for this man and he's on his way. They're like, what kind of weird cult are we being invited into, right? That had to have been running through the minds of some people. So they're all gathered. They don't know what's gonna take place. And now Peter gets up and he's like, okay, there's this gospel opportunity right 
in front of him. And so we get his words. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he says, "Who he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. So Peter's just simply, he's telling the story of Jesus. Friends, I want us to be encouraged in this too. What Peter says here are things, I believe that like all of us with not much effort would be able to like commit to memory, just some of the, the basic things. Not that this is a script to use, but do you notice like Peter is just like, well, let me just tell the story of Jesus. Let me tell you what, what I know. I don't think there's anything that he's trying to be overly persuasive. He doesn't, he doesn't open with like a funny illustration or anything. He's just like, okay, well, I'll tell you about Jesus, right? He did it somehow without slides. I don't know how he did it, right? Like he just goes in there, all right? And he begins to tell the story. All who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. He's like, oh, there's something happening here. And then we get to verse 39 and he says, and we are all witnesses, are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put, to, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, Peter could have used a number of different ways to talk about Jesus's death. He literally could have said, they nailed him to a, a Roman cross, but he doesn't say that. He says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Why does he use this language? What's because really what's happening is there's now a theological understanding of what took place. They didn't get it at the time. They were confused by it. But after Jesus is risen from the dead and begins to explain to his disciples, he's getting ready to commission. They're beginning to understand, oh, the book of Deuteronomy spoke of anyone cursed as anyone who's hung upon a tree. It's why Paul would reference that in the book of Galatians, speaking of this reality. It's why Peter says it here because Jesus, he's understanding, became a curse for us. That he dealt with the, the curse that our sin and our rebellion brought upon, that should have been brought upon us, but was instead brought upon him. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was hung on that tree outside of the city of Jerusalem, up on that hill in your place, in my place, the wrath of God being poured out on him. The one who had known perfect union and connection with the father. This perfect unity is suddenly separated. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has made the ultimate outsiders that you and I would have the opportunity to be the ultimate insider, to be in the family of God. That's what it means that he was cursed, that he was hung upon a tree, but he didn't stay there. He conquered Satan, sin and death by rising again. What is Peter doing? He's doing the first Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I speak to you of what is of first importance, the gospel the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's not overly complicate this thing. The whole thing hinges on that. And then verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. So there is a real judgment. You're either with Jesus or you're not. So even in this beautiful picture of inclusion, it's not that Jesus is saying, well, everybody gets in regards to their belief. He's saying, no, anybody can get in. It doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background, it doesn't matter if you're male, female, it doesn't matter if you're slave or free, it doesn't matter if you're educated, uneducated, it doesn't matter. What matters is you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus. It says to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
And now get this, he's in the middle of preaching, right? He's laying this out and it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, not after he had concluded, right? Not after he had some closing points of application and closed in prayer while the worship team came up, right? None of that had happened, right? While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews who had come with, with Peter, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The ones they held with such contempt, the ones that they thought were the scum of the earth, the ones that they would have spat upon the ground when speaking of them, they're like, the Holy Spirit has come. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. They're suddenly realizing, oh, these ones who we put in the other category, they're not other anymore. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. The gospel of Jesus has unified us. The gospel is going forward to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It's going to the ends of the earth. It's a new work that's being birthed amongst a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile like Cornelius and his friends and family member. This thing is just on fire now. And it's spilling out from that place. And so there's this conversion that takes place. But friends, there's more than just one conversion. There's the conversion from death to life that we find in Christ. And by a second conversion, I don't mean getting saved again and some of that, that fear, you know, that you got to come down to the altar again because maybe you didn't really pray the prayer right that time, right? No, it's not that sort of thing, but it is this idea, this little bit of play on words that it's this idea like we get converted to Jesus and then with that new life, we get converted more fully into his mission. We become a people that seek Mishpah, not because we have anything to earn, Jesus has already done it, but we live now in glad response to him. The call is, we need that double conversion. And we see this play out if we go back to verse 34. It says, so Peter, who is a follower of Jesus at this point, who's been converted by the grace of God, please be encouraged in this. He denied Jesus, right? You know this. Little girl asked him, weren't you one of them? No, I never knew the man. So Jesus, uh, Peter's denied Jesus multiple times. And yet Jesus restores him tells him he's going to use him. And we're seeing that play out. So Peter opened his mouth. He's not supposed to associate, but he realizes, oh, like at the foot of the cross, it's all level. I'm no better, no worse than Cornelius. This gospel is bigger than I ever imagined. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, I wish I could just say at one level, amen, Peter gets it, man, go be like him. Except there's no heroes in the Bible besides Jesus, right? And Peter, even in this moment where you're seeing the next iteration in his life, the next sort of progression of like him being converted further, more deeply into the gospel, into the mission that Jesus has for him. Do you know he leaves this moment? Think about this. Think about how he and Cornelius and this whole community, how they would have told the story of this day. Like they would have been marked by this day. Do you remember that? Like we both got visions and then I showed up and I said a few words and then just the Holy Spirit fell and like all this, all this amazing, beautiful stuff started to happen. I mean, I can't imagine there was a day that went by where, where Peter didn't think about that. Like, wow, that's amazing. And yet Peter would later on find himself enjoying all the things that would have been on that sheet coming down from heaven, like enjoying a diverse diet now, not being bound by the dietary laws that he would have grown up with, enjoying time with people who have become followers of Jesus, 
that don't share his Jewish ethnicity, enjoying the beautiful diversity of God's kingdom. And while this is happening, it tells us in the scriptures that there's a group of James and some of the circumcision party, some people that still were like, well, you got to obey all the rules if you're really going to be in the, the, the right group. And what does Peter do? Rather than saying, no, 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 there's great freedom in Christ, he operates out of fear. And he leaves the group that had been so welcomed in. And this is what we read about in Galatians chapter two. Paul shows up and it tells us he confronts Peter on his self-righteousness, his fear, his prejudice, his racist behavior that would lead him to leave the people that had been welcomed in and to go and start operating with the people that maybe he felt most safe with or felt like, oh, I don't want to upset them. So it tells us in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, when Cephas, now that's another name for, for Peter, all right? When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says this, I opposed him to his face. I didn't do it passive aggressively. I didn't post a comment on, on social media about this, right? He's like, I got up in his face. Now he's doing it out of love. But he's like, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, before that happened, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So it's not just Peter in isolation. He's having an effect even to other believers, including Barnabas, and they're all starting to retreat. This is not God's heart. It's moving away from a right ordering. It's bringing more disruption. It's bringing, it's grieving the heart of God. And Paul knows this. He's a fellow believer in Jesus by the grace of God. He doesn't view himself as better than Peter, but he's like, we can't stand for this. Like this, this grieves the heart of God. We need to love what God loves. And so then Paul says this in Galatians 2 verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? That part I put in bold though, this is the key. Paul gets in Peter's face sometime after the story of Cornelius. And he's like, you're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. Notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't get in Peter's face, right? And saying, you're being self-righteous. You're being a bigot. You're being racist. You're being prejudiced. Stop it. Cut it out. You know better than this. Not what he does. Would all of that have been true? Yes. But that's not what he does. Tim Keller, a number of years ago, wrote an article for the Gospel and Life Quarterly. I've linked it out in the, uh, the, the sermon notes so you can go read. It's, there's a lot of content there, but I wanna read to you a couple of things. And he speaks of this. He speaks of what's happening here. So follow along with this quote. He says, what is taking place is like, Paul is confronting Peter, but I would maybe put it to you this way. He's confronting Peter's sin by reminding him of his sonship. He's reminding Peter, my friend, you've forgotten your identity in Christ. Keller says it this way. First, Paul's analysis of the sin is noteworthy. He does not simply say that racism is a sin, although it is indeed a failure to love one's neighbor as oneself. Rather, Paul is laying bare the spiritual roots of racism. It's a rejection of the gospel of salvation and a return to justification by our moral efforts or pedigree. 
Christians who fall into racism are continuing to trust in works righteousness in at least one part of their lives. Their hearts still oppose grace and seek to find ways of self-justification. They try to devise ways to feel superior, more acceptable, and better than others. And they use their racial characteristics to do so. That's what's going on. He says, you're not living in step with the gospel. We continues. Look at this next point. And this is, I think, incredibly profound, incredibly beautiful. Second, Paul's actual treatment of the sin is brilliant. He did not simply say to Peter, repent of the sin of racism, you bigot. But rather he said, repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Christ. Do you, do you see what he's saying? My friend, like he's pleading with them, you have forgotten that, but by the grace of God, like you've got no hope in this world. Like you were rescued, you were redeemed. Jesus died for you. Like you were dead in your sins and trespasses. There's nothing about who you are that makes you like lovable to God. He condescended to you. He suffered everything so that you could be raised up to that life of flourishing that we talked about last week. Have you lost sight of that reality? When we act with self-righteousness, with contempt, and we look down our nose that people based on, could be race, it could be their political views, it, it could be their education, it, it could be their socioeconomic status, it could be any number of things. We're creating this division because we're viewing ourselves as like, yeah, I got Jesus, but I'm a little bit better than you in this. And Paul will not stand for it. That's why he calls Peter out, but God will not stand for it. He cares too much for his people. And so he says, repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Christ. Paul did not focus just on the behavioral sin, but also on the root, also on the root of the self-righteousness beneath it. This approach is far more persuasive and effective than simply ranting at someone for being a racist. When you're trying to motivate people by urging them to see their riches in Christ, then you're pointing to their value and dignity in your appeal. You're not putting them down, but lifting them up even as you critique. So when Paul says you're not living in step with the gospel, it's a shorthand way of saying, oh, Peter, you've forgotten your sonship. You forgot you're in the family of God. You forgot that you've been welcomed in because the more you and I remember our sonship in Christ, our inheritance, that we've got nothing to prove, the more we become, oh, like we're all saved by grace. It's all level at the foot of the cross. And we can move towards one another and we can seek to understand one another. But I don't mean that in sort of try easy way. Some of these are complex issues. They have a long history. But what would it look like for us as the church to begin to lament together, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, to seek to better understand. We can only do that to the extent that we remember who we are in Christ. And then friends, beautifully, it ends with a community. This community that's birthed in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Baptism, that outward sign of what God has inwardly done. It was that outward sign that says, you're in. Didn't save them in that moment. They'd already been saved, but it was this beautiful welcoming into the church family. What would it look like for us as a church? Not operating with some sort of simplistic mindset, like we're just gonna do these three things and we'll grow as a multi-ethnic family, but, but to be praying that, that God might use us, that we might begin to grow and that we might have a deeper understanding and appreciation 
Because where this story is heading, friends, I mean, this, this is just the, like the warming, warm up act for like what's coming for us with this diverse multi-ethnic kingdom, what Jesus is building, we get to be part of it. What would it look like for the church to, to lead out? And so as we think about how will you, you and I respond, I think the church needs to lead out in repentance individually, also collectively of like, we, we repent, we, we grieve and we, we lament the, the brokenness. We lament that there isn't the mishpat that the Lord desires for there to be. And then we remember the calling of the gospel. We remember our identity in Christ. We remember these things that we might actually be able to move forward with a love and a confidence and a humility together. And we would resolve ultimately to be people that are committed together to seeking Mishpat. Not because we have anything to earn. We don't. It's all been earned by Jesus. I'll close with this as we get ready to come to this, this meal in a moment that reminds us of the unity we have in Christ. I don't offer this as like this little platitude. And it's like, we'll just do this and this is gonna change everything. But in his, his book, How to Know a Person, David Brooks writes these words and he speaks of, we have opportunities every day to be either a diminisher or an illuminator. And the question I think that faces us as a church is like, which camp will we fall into? And he says this, if we want to begin repairing the, the big national ruptures, I think we would all admit that's present. Not that this solves all of it, but what would it look like as just one small step? He says, we have to learn to do the small things well. In every crowd, there are diminishers and there are illuminators. Diminishers make people feel small and unseen. They see other people as things to be used, not as persons to be befriended. They stereotype and ignore. They are so involved with themselves that other people are just not on their radar screen. May that not be said of us. May we not live that, but that's the easy way to live. May we be known rather as illuminators. Illuminators on the other hand have a persistent curiosity about other people. They have been trained or have trained themselves in the craft of understanding others. They know what to look for and how to ask the right questions at the right time. They shine the brightness of their care on people and make them feel bigger, and deeper, respected, lit up. That's only possible as we remember the gospel. Friends, this meal is gonna help remind us of the gospel. So the prayer arts, let me, let's go before the Lord in, in prayer and I'll give us some further instruction. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son in this ultimate mishpat rescue mission. And we thank you that Jesus, your calling of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, that you had such concern for all people. We are the beneficiaries of, of that grace and that mercy and that mission that you had from the very beginning. As so we thank you, and we ask that you would use us as your church that we would love people well, that you would use us in, in small ways to bring about small, God, just bit by bit repairs that you would help us to, to help reweave the places of the social fabric that's been torn apart. Use us, Lord, to bring about that shalom, the reconciliation where it's needed. God, give us a freedom to lament, to grieve, to repent the places of brokenness, but encourage us as well, God, that you're not finished with us yet. You weren't finished with Peter. You continue to, to grow him, to continue to convert him deeper into the mission that you had for him. Would you do that with us, Lord? We are not finished. We wanna to continue to grow, to be made more holy, 
to be sanctified. So set us apart for your mission, Lord. Do it for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name, amen.